80% of people want to be exceptional mid-level leaders. Yeah, that for them is the destination. That's where they want to land and they just want to excel. And one of the areas that they uncover when they work with me is in order to excel as a mid-level leader, you do need to learn and apply some of the techniques of influencing that those in the C-suite use. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thanks to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. They are your go-to full-service digital marketing agency for bright and imaginative solutions. Learn more at neontreehouse.com. Arepa are our new drink sponsor for 2024. Arepa is the brain drink. It's refreshing, tasty, and helps you perform at your best without the caffeine jitters. Try Arepa for yourself and get an exclusive 25% Humans of Purpose discount by heading to drinkarepa.com.au and entering promo code HOP25 at checkout. Linked for you in our show notes also. This week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to bring you my conversation with Rebecca Horton. Rebecca is the CEO of Bold HR. Bold Bold HR is dedicated to building B-suite leaders with C-suite impact. What does this mean? Well, quite simply, helping middle managers become top performers who can create impact and become far more effective in both mindset, execution, and strategy. Rebecca, or Bex as I know her, has been working at this for over 25 years in a range of settings and is the first professional mentor I've worked with that helped me to gain a better awareness of organizational dynamics, my own strengths, and how to leverage them effectively, how to work with different sorts of leaders to get the best outcomes. There are some real gems in this conversation around the challenges of leadership, how to be effective at different levels of an organization, how leadership has changed over time, and how we can show up and give the best of ourselves at our workplaces each day. Before we get stuck in, a quick thanks to the Asylum Seeker Resource Center, ASRC, for sponsoring us this month. The ASRC are doing truly impactful work in supporting asylum seekers and refugees and making them feel welcome in Australia. One way you can support their work is to be part of the Feast for Freedom campaign. You can sign up now to celebrate what unites us. Just head to feastforfreedom.org.au today to register to host a life-changing feast. You can also just hit the link in our show notes to get there. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Bex as much as I did. So I have your first call for the day, Bex. How are you going? No, I'm good. I was a bit croaky earlier, but I'm fine now. <laughs> <laughs> you think this will be a good first up performance? Do you have much of a warm up ritual for the? I know you have a long day of webinars, calls, and online online sessions. What do you normally do to get you right for the morning? I do. Do you know there's there's only two things you've got to do. So number one, you have to sing a song, <laughs> which I know is completely weird and really embarrassing. So I tend to keep that to the shower because it's horrible for everyone. Um, <laughs> and then next two black coffees, and then all will be good. That is two black coffees. Are they at the same time or consecutive or what? No, I t- they tend to be consecutive. I think there's something about kind of, I get a bit scared of one massive, great big black coffee. So I think I just stagger it a little bit. <laughs> By the time that little, you know, little ceremony has been completed, then all is well with the world. Yeah, I, um, on the singing note, I don't sing because I don't want to freak out the neighbours or anyone in my household. But um, my young son, who's who's nearly 20 months now in the car this morning, has started to sing random songs. So the other day it was Row, Row, Row Your Boat, and then he demands you start singing. Uh, and his other one was he started singing this morning, E-I-E-I-O. And like then I thought, oh, where's he got that from? Hold on, I know that song. That's uh, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. So I had to sing that for a good um, half an hour this morning. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. It's such an awesome age. And it's, 
I think it just brings back some of your childhood joy. You know, we just forget and take things all a bit seriously. There's nothing wrong. Oh, yes. You should see my um, my 74 year old father when he when he's around my 20 month old. I mean, he's just just like a new person. It's like being born again. It's just wild the the regression and the that um, the reversion back to mindfulness. Anyway, I'm taking us completely off course. Uh, I didn't mean <laughs> to do that. I don't know how we got here, but I, I want to start by understanding how you think about or define leadership. Well, that's a really, really good question. You know, I was I was reading an article the other day that um, you know, was one of those, I think they we call them listicles, you know, the the article that has 27 things that you have to be in order to be a leader. Um, and it really struck me that it could have been 270 things or 2070 things. You know, there isn't really a definition, is there? I think what is leadership? I think it's being worthy of followership, actually. I don't think it's about what you do. I think it's about what other people choose you to do. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, I've heard things like leadership is a style. It's a it's a range of character traits. It's things that you do. It's the um, you know the way that you um, the way that you walk into a room. It's the things that you do when no one's looking. I, I suppose there could be almost um, innumerable taxonomies of leadership that we could play with. Yeah, absolutely. And that, I think that's why leadership is so overwhelming, right? Because the list is endless and. Half of it is nonsense. And when you work with as many leaders as I do, and, and you'd know, Mike, you know, we've worked together before, but one of the things that really strikes me is that there is no truism, right? Every, every person I work with, whether it's a highly confident female or a deeply underconfident male, whether it's an introvert or an extrovert, whether it's someone who rides on their charisma or who really concentrates on the art of leadership and is very deliberate about their leadership. Um, everyone is so, so different. It doesn't make them more or less effective. I really don't think there is a perfect formula. Although I should say that there is, of course, because I'm in leadership, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe, I mean, this is where I think um, I quite like the, the. Um, we always talk about whether it's something more on the art or science spectrum. Um, you know, is something more of an art? Is it, is it something that you do instinctively, naturally through creative pursuits, or is it something that you uh, ascribe to a, a range of evidence-based techniques and, and, and formulas to get things done? So I wonder for you um, where you kind of find leadership on that spectrum. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would have said in my younger leadership stages that it was more on the the kind of the wingy end of the spectrum, right? You've, you've either got it innately or you don't. Um I have learned that I was completely and utterly wrong. So you absolutely can learn it. You can very deliberately apply proven techniques. Um, and I've seen people who would never have fit a traditional, you know, ooh, there goes a leader kind of mold, who have come out of the traps as, you know, some of the greatest leaders I've ever worked with have been those that never wanted to be, never thought they would, don't look or smell like one. But because they are applying, meticulously applying the techniques of leadership, they've outstripped their competitors who are riding on their charisma and that old style of natural leadership, which was really kind of cult of personality leadership, which is another type, but it's not necessarily the best type. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And that sort of takes me a little bit further down the pecking order of things I wanted to discuss. But I mean, you've kind of, in a way, answered that question of whether leadership is just a born trait or set of traits, or whether it's something that can be taught and learned. And presumably, you wouldn't be working in the space if you believe the, uh, the, the former that it's, you know, you're born with it or you're not. Well, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Why spend money on a coach? Yeah. I, I yeah. completely agree. Mm. 
Because one thing that I've observed, and I've heard this from many people uh, as a limitation in succession planning for organizations is like you get the most basic form of leadership when people just outstrip the capabilities and performance of their current position and there's nowhere for them to go except for up. So they, they get pushed up and they, at that point, um, for whatever, whether whether they've got themselves to that higher level through hard work and sheer good performance or nefarious means, maybe stepping on the shoulders of others or stepping over their, their subordinates or, you know, claiming, you know, too much credit for things they haven't done necessarily, you get to that stage and then you're kind of like, well, what's worked for you to this point is not going to work for you at that kind of other stage now, whether that middle management or the the sort of part before executive leadership. How do you kind of reflect on that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good point, Mike. You know, when, when we first start in leadership, part of our uh, success is really down to how well we can execute the orders of others. Um, you know, becoming that that trusted right hand, that indispensable executor of you know quality operations, right? Um, and and for when you look back on it later in your career, you kind of reflect on the fact that you were really quite an order taker. You're just really really good at it, you know. Um, and that gets you so far, right? It gets you noticed quickly. It makes you more efficient, more productive. You'll outpower anyone at that level. So you do typically get picked for promotion because. The, the unspoken expectation is that you can breed more people like you. Uh, of course, that doesn't happen. That's why we get that first kind of wave of burnout, because people go into a job where they've got loads of other responsibilities and they keep being the number one performer, the most productive person on the team. So that's you know, the first kind of fail point. And for us, we, we kind of call that a circuit breaker moment. If they get through that and they learn not to do two jobs and they learn to let go of that impact maker, the, sorry, the um, if they learn to let go of their order taker mindset, the the yes boss, I'll get it done faster, quicker, better than anybody else. They actually have to mindfully let that go in order to get through that circuit breaker moment and become a senior leader. Because a senior leader, when you're in that impact maker stage, all of the rules have changed. You know, you're not there to take orders. You're not there to follow rules. You're not there to say yes to everything. In fact, the opposite. You know, you are there to, I hate the word give orders, but you have to be very careful about how you communicate because mm. everyone takes it as an order. Um, you are there to make the rules and bend the rules and break the rules, not necessarily follow the rules. Otherwise, you'll never lead a business that innovates. Um, and you're certainly not there to say yes to everything. You know, certainly not. So to have to completely rewire yourself halfway through your career and the fearful factor of letting go of what made you famous, you know, what got you so far in your career, logically, nobody would do that. <laughs> so yeah. it's a task, you know, it's a massive shift, that circuit breaker stage. It's huge. Yeah, and I, th I think one of the more interesting challenges um, that I've observed and experienced actually is that shift from operational workhorse to strategic uh, acumen and leadership. So sort of being able to decide, um, okay, well, here's all the things that are happening. Are they adding value and le leading to impact? Um, you start to become a prioritizer and a, a delegator and a, a sort of decider of who's the best person in the team to talk to or to, to lead the work on a project. Um and it's it's often trying to be a bit more discerning in what you actually spend your time on, what's adding the most value uh, to an organisation. The second one would probably be, um, you know, that that idea of um, 
starting to care for a group of people who work to you or work with you. So you become, I think, more of a almost like a family person in that you've got people who are looking to you for, um, for, you know, the right ways to behave, the right ways to model behavior, to do things, to execute well, and also how to manage workflow, which becomes, you know, that real, I think the most undervalued part of that leadership space is that like caring persona. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think you've, you've kind of hit two things there. The first point that you made is, is that difference between kind of executing and prioritizing and in in the model that that Bold HR works to, you know, we really look at the the first levels of your leadership maturity as being that order taker style. But really, your job is to work out the best possible ways to execute what's needed. And then you go through that circuit breaker stage, and you suddenly become someone who now needs to decide what work gets done, not how the work gets done but what work actually gets done. And you start to filter out certain requests and make sure that what gets passed down is, to your point, Mike, the, the, the best, the most important, the highest priority, highest impact work, and not the rest, not the busy stuff, the junk. Um, then your next point was about care. And, you know, care is such an important and underrated um, trait. And as much as we don't want to go into lists of traits again, um, it's it's a but it is a two-edged sword, right? So we have seen, and you will always see leaders who care too much. You know the the classic den mother. They're they're more in their team, protecting their team. They're fiercely loyal to their team, but it stops them from making really objective decisions about their team, making the difficult people decisions, and it also stops them from launching their people into more senior careers because they've got that kind of protectionism. You know, let's keep the tribe together. So there's a danger. In overworking the care factor, there's a danger in feeling like too much of a family because you're not really a family. No. And nor, nor would you want to be. You're like, you're not going to adopt your, your team members. That would just be crazy. So, you know, you, you kind of like this caring. I guess I meant that there's like a bit of a parental care feel, but maybe without the protectionism. Maybe it's sort of like, you know, I'm here for you, but you still need to go out and get things done and I, I will protect you. But you know, in terms of, because um, you're often in a position where you're responsible for a team, and that might be a business unit, a division, or something like this. But then you're also part of an executive team. We're reporting to an executive who's part of a bigger team, and then it's sort of like trying to figure out or think about how do you balance, you know, um, giving the team the good work that it needs, uh, making sure the team's performing well, has the right people, but also delivering on what the uh, higher ups need from you. Yeah, and that, in a nutshell, Mike, is the problem with middle management. Mm. It's an absolute identity crisis. You don't really belong to either gang. That's why you can't really make a family of your team because it means that you've you've made your loyalty too clear to one group. And the bottom line is, in organisations, they are in conflict. You know, their agendas are opposing, and that tension is what drives businesses forwards. You know, fundamentally. But you've always got a workforce that is looking at managing workload, managing well-being, making sure that we're not, you know, taking advantage of our workers and we're not asking too much of them that's unreasonable and the deal is still a good deal. And then we've got an executive who are constantly looking for ways to do more with less, right? So those fundamentally are opposing agendas, which means that anyone who's stuck in the middle of that, you know, the entire middle management cohort is up for a pretty bad time because both of those groups are bigger, more powerful, 
and and highly polarized. So to be the only person who can bring them together, who can translate, who can arbitrate, that's a hell of a job on its own, let alone the rest of the work that you do on a daily on a day-to-day basis. I like the arbitrate point there or sort of like intermediate those two kind of um different demands and so like you know i wonder what you see so when when somebody becomes too protective over their team what does that result in and and then i'll ask you the counterpoint where you see people being um too engaged with the higher ups and the the org agenda and not prioritizing the team needs what what happens then Absolutely. Well, you know, the, the classic den mother is the one that's too involved in the team. So everything is protecting their team. Everything is, you know, make no change that will affect my team and everything needs to come through me to my team. So that person tends to be on the verge of burnout all the time, can tend towards martyrism a little bit, you know, um, you know, I'm protecting you from everything, blah, blah, blah. Um, that person is not trusted by the executive because that person can't make objective decisions about their team. And that is what is required. So that's a career limiting move to get too invested in that in the tribe of your team. Um, the move in the other direction is not as career limiting, sadly, but certainly you lose in the popularity stakes. So, you know, a den mother can be very popular, very loved, but quite limited, whereas a greasy pole climber is universally hated, but can get on. So one <laughs> of the things that we see a lot is we see people who are really good at managing up. And really horrible to work with. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Either as a peer or as a boss. Um, so often we see leaders who treat their teams accordingly, but all the executive love them. Now, that's because they're leaning too far into the executive tribe and they're not making fair decisions. They're obsessed with getting more for less. And that means that they run their teams into the ground. Does that affect them long term as much as the den mother? I'm afraid it doesn't because the executive do have the power to pull you up the hill. Um, whereas the workforce don't have the power to propel you up the hill. So it's one of the things to be very, very careful of. And certainly one of the biggest complaints I get from leaders is, you know, I work with this guy or this girl and they're really, really political and they steal credit or they, you know, they always claim things that they've done that wasn't them. It was a, you know, it was a group effort or wasn't them at all. Um, but the executives seem to love them and nothing they ever say can possibly be wrong. And I always wonder, what is the question here? What is the question? Do you want me to phone them and tell them to stop no. being a easy pole climber? <laughs> or is your question, how do I get the credit and the influence that they get without being a greasy pole climber? Yeah, I, I reckon it's it's always like that latter one is quite interesting because I think in reality, none of us want to be the greasy pole climber, to use your lovely vernacular. But, but um, we see that modelled and then we think, oh, well, this person is moving up to C-suite roles a lot faster. This this person has the executive wrapped around their finger. I mean, they treat their team like shit. No one wants to work with them. Um, and they're pretty horrible to everyone else, but they seem to be excelling in their career and have great job prospects moving forward. Yeah, it's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible. What we are finding, though, as organisations flatten, is that there's more and more transparency around that. So if you're in an organization that runs 360s, if you're in an organization that has engagement surveys, these sorts of behaviors are becoming harder and harder to hide. So you, you're in a position now where you have to keep your team happy. You know, it's becoming too obvious if you don't. So those kinds of people, they're, they're being weeded out, but slowly, you know, mm. slower than we would all like. I think the flip side of it though, is we look at that and we think, well, I don't want to do that. 
You know, I don't want to be political. I don't want to deliberately apply influence. It feels manipulative and Machiavellian and that's not how I'm going to play. Um, my advice is that's really naive. Yeah. You know, it's, it's unfortunate, but yes, people should do the right thing because they're good people and it's the right thing, but they don't, they never do. They do things because they're selfish, self-motivated or because there's a, you know, a big chunk of money or revenue or fame attached to it. We're fairly simple and fairly obvious. Most of us, um, particularly the higher up the chain you get, personality types actually become far simpler and far more obvious. They're very status oriented. So, you know, there is a question about, do you want to play with those personality types? Because then stop chasing the hierarchy. Um, please stop saying they should behave like this because they never will. Mm. And just decide how you're going to get what you need out of the relationship, out of the situation by applying some of their techniques in a more ethical way. Yeah. And, mm. and, and maybe um, just to reflect a little bit, that it's a bit about being aware of the power dynamics and power structures that exist because they always exist, especially within an organizational context. And with power, there's always politics. So, you know, you can be aware of all this stuff without being deeply involved in a full-time 4D Machiavellian chess game. Um, but I wonder also, you know, if you really don't want to be aware of that and don't acknowledge it and want to see well clear of it, I mean, maybe, um, not everyone should aspire to that kind of C-suite leadership because a lot of the time that that's involved in getting there and arriving there. Oh, you're absolutely right. And you know, it's really interesting. 20% of the people who come to work for me state that they want to move up in their career. Only 20%. Now I work with experienced leaders, so they've already reached a level but only 20% of them want to go any further. Now, that's a really interesting stat, and I think it's a really healthy stat. The, you know, 80% of people want to be exceptional mid-level leaders. You know, that, for them, is the destination. That's where they want to land, and they just want to excel. And one of the areas that they uncover when they work with me is in order to excel as a mid-level leader, you do need to learn and apply some of the techniques of influencing that those in the C-suite use. Now, it's really not about being political. It's your intention when you're political. You know, if you're selfish, self-centered, nefarious, if you've got an, an evil agenda, then that's the wrong kind of political. But if you're doing things for the right reason, then it's really about just beefing up your armory so that the right things get done. But if you can't influence the right things to get done, then you can have all the best reasons in the world, but they're not going to come true, which makes you ineffective and frustrated. So you have to learn to play the game, but you can be a good guy playing the game. You know, mm. you don't have to be a bad guy. Politics has a really bad connotation. Everybody thinks that, you know, playing politics means you're a bad person. But what if you're playing politics for a really good agenda? Aren't you an asset then to the mission? Yeah. Of yeah. That makes total sense. Um in your time in, in leadership, I mean, you must have seen a lot change uh, and, and sort of preferred styles. Like the ones I always talk about is like, I think in 2016 or 2017, everyone was about um, adaptive leadership. And then, you know, you've got different ones like mindful leadership emerging. Do you pay much attention to these sort of styles or different approaches that seem to be in vogue? Or just wonder over time, what have you seen in terms of how leadership has evolved um, in, in its nature and practice? 
Yeah, great question. When I the first time I stepped up into leadership, and you know, classic high performer gets promoted, shouldn't have, was way too young and way too arrogant. Um, the the first leadership training I ever got was adjust your style to meet the needs of the people who work for you. So you know, off I went, job number one, adjusting my style to everyone's needs. And at the end of my first year, I got my performance rating, my three hundred and sixty results, and you know, I ripped them open with excitement. <laughs> I literally burst into tears. They were horrific, horrific fundamentally could not be trusted, was always different with, you know, treats everyone differently. Mm. So I think I started my whole, I actually quit leadership for a couple of years. I was Mm. that devastated by this. Um, I think it started my whole leadership career with a deep cynicism for particular philosophies around leadership. So, you know, you're quite right that there's so many situational leadership, servant leadership, blah, 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 blah. I think that leadership experts get hung up on the accuracy of the philosophy. I don't think real leaders should get hung up on that stuff. It gets in the way of you really listening to what's needed and doing what's required in a way that's authentic to you. Yeah, I think just make it easy. It, yeah, but, but Bex, n- now you've said authentic leadership. That's its own style now, isn't it? Well, come on, I know. There you go. <laughs> Everyone's labelled it. There's another list. There's another list. <laughs> and, and we were talking about this on another podcast the other day. I mean, the idea of trying to be more authentic is just like kind of very oxymoronic because like the idea of trying to be authentic is inauthentic. So how do you be more authentic? Like just saying that you should be more authentic is just takes you down this crazy wormhole of like... <laughs> It is. It's so, so weird. <laughs> I, yeah, it is really, really weird. And, you know, this whole authenticity thing is just like, you know, if you're going to be truly authentic, you're just going to tell people exactly what you think of them yeah. all the time. And might, might not be the best idea. Not a great idea. Um, mm. So I sometimes wonder if, you know, authentic leadership is an excuse for behaving badly sometimes. Yeah. This is who I am. I'm not going to change. This is my style. Um, people love me because of, I am exactly how I am. But like, do they? <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, hear, when I hear a leader say that, you know, I, I am what I am and you get what you see and yeah. I'm not going to change for anyone. Honestly, all my alarm bells are ringing and I'm just like, really? Are you <laughs> the kind of person I'd want on my leadership team then? Because if you're that inflexible and you're that, you know, self-centric, then I think probably not. What are you seeing as sort of some of the key challenges um, that leaders are facing now in, in both the B-suite and C-suite space with everything that's happened over the past few years and maybe just the passing of time? What are the changes? What are the key challenges and barriers like today to effective leadership? Hmm. I think the biggest challenge we have at the moment is confidence. You know, I think that leadership has got harder and harder and harder. I think it's become less and less clear. So if you're in what I call the B-suite, which is middle management. And, and I, I hated the word middle management. So for me, a good middle manager is a B-suite leader because they're operating like a C-suite leader in the middle. Um, and a bad middle manager is the old school paper pusher that we all made horrible jokes about. Um, so for me, when, when, you're, when you're kind of in the B-suite, one of the spaces that has become harder and harder is the actual definition of your role. You know, it, it's got worse, this, this piggy in the middle thing and this lack of identity has become worse and worse. And I think it's causing a bit of a a confidence crisis. You know, we know that only 50% of leaders today feel confident to lead. Uh, We know that businesses have less than 50% confidence in their mid-level leaders to lead. So confidence is a bit of a crisis. And I think that's driving the next 
looming problem that we've definitely got, which is that people are opting out. You know, already one in five leaders would quit people leadership if they could afford to. You know, it's really just the salary that's keeping them where yeah. they are miserable. They hate it. They want out. Um, less than 20% of young professionals want to be a leader. Yeah, I, mean, I find that staggering. I mean, that, that even what that stat was, the same 20% you read off earlier around whether people actually want to progress to uh, senior leadership. I just assumed that everyone wanted to. Um, maybe that's sort of revealing that I, I just think everyone is super career focused and type A because maybe that's a bit in my family or environment. I, I don't know. I just sort of assumed that that was, was it, did that surprise you? Um, it, it doesn't. It doesn't because the, look, I think, I think the C-suite is appealing to some people, you know, the autonomy, the decision-making, the profile is very attractive to probably one in five personality types. So it would make sense that 20% of people want to be in the C-suite. The reality is only about 3% will ever make it and 2% of them will fail. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a very competitive tight market at the top. And yeah, you know, Mike, you know you're in the C-suite, right? It's yeah, it's time. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I I think it, it's really interesting. I mean, I don't think. I, I mean, for me, I wasn't. I don't think I was in the C-suite because I was obsessed with being in the C-suite. I think there's sometimes there's just opportunity and it's there and you take it. But I just really am curious about that sort of twenty percent of people who are you know desperate to make it into C-suite because that's their life mission. I wonder what percentage of those folks display some sort of narcissistic personality traits that might, might be a bit toxic or undesirable. Well, there's a, there's some really good articles out there called um, "Your Boss Is a Psychopath." So you can go and look at that. <laughs> Very commonly searched uh, phrase, it I'm is sure. Quite a commonly searched phrase. Um, but but I tell you what, what is interesting. I think that young professionals they don't have that much of a connection with the C-suite. You know, they're, they're really seeing them from a great distance. So for those who are quite status driven, they look at that job and they go, yeah, that's what I want. The corner office, the Ferrari, the big salary. Give me, give me, give me. That's fine. Right. We've got to have some of those. In fact, we need more of them because we're running out. What they actually see day to day is the B suite. They see those mid level leaders who are running around like crazy, burning out like crazy. They've got way too much work, like way too much. They've got something like, 60% of their work is not achievable in a 90-hour week. Hmm. So it's bonkers. So they're looking at that person and they're thinking, right, that level of stress, that lack of respect from the top and and the salary, not enough, man. Hmm. Nowhere near enough. Yeah. So they look at that and they just go, nah, no thanks. I just don't see why you're doing it. What's the return on investment? Yeah, and is that maybe why we see sort of so many people? I mean, I, certainly in the past few months, or the past year or two, I've seen a lot of peers around my age, that sort of thirty-five to forty-five uh, bracket, deciding not to progress in in a linear way uh, up in their careers, and instead almost drop down to where they're running their own small uh, consultancies, uh, one or two people or three people. And I think that speaks to me to an interesting desire for. Um, you know, a bit of the Daniel Pink formula, like autonomy, mastery, and purpose. That that is sort of like they they not getting. I mean, having that huge amount of workplace stress dumped on you, too much work, not enough time, not enough respect, resources, or autonomy in how you work, um, and then going maybe to that smaller uh, or or different sort of orientation might open up a lot of those workplace motivators for you. I think it does. I think it does, and we are definitely seeing a shift to that. You know, we're seeing a lot of people, yeah, either setting up on their own or joining a smaller practice, 
Um, but also a lot of people stepping back into an, an individual contributor role. So almost like an in-house consultant, you know, mm. um, and, and look, that's not unique to the B-suite. It's certainly in larger proportions in the B-suite, but it's not unique to the B-suite. The C-suite are suffering as well. So I don't want to blackball them entirely because they're not, you know, they're not the problem. You know, the whole system is contributing to a really difficult time for mid-level leaders, but you know, the C-suite are, are burning out too. They're incredibly, they've never had a higher rating of likely to quit their job. Um, if again, I think most of them, if they could afford to, they would. So they've gone through hell over the last five years, absolute hell. And it's not looking like it's getting much better. Mm. Um, you know, the, the economic and the climate changes that are coming through at the moment are just going to put them under more and more pressure. So, so the C-suite are struggling. You know, the B-suite are kind of trying to hold it all together and they're struggling and burning out at the same time. And this malaise is going to wash its way all the way through workforces. And that for me is the fear is if we've got so many people opting out of leadership, fast forward 10 years, the only people who are going to still be in leadership are the old school, old people. That's not helpful for an organization. It's not that mm. they're terrible leaders. It's just that they're not going to be contemporary. Um, and, you know, fast forward 20, 25 years, no leaders left. I mean, that's just mm. a ridiculous profile to be looking at. So for me, I think we've got to really change the reputation of the B-suite. You know, it was it was middle management, horrible, I hate that label, but, you know, it was created in 1977 and it was really clearly a leader, capital L, is a strategic visionary and a middle manager, capital M's, the best it can ever be is a really good kind of strategic-ish administrator basically the chief admin officer of the team. Hmm. But that reputation has been terrible. And we've, we've you know, made jokes about them. Dilbert has pretty much made an entire cartoon career out of them. You know, the office is basically about them. Utopia. It's, it just goes on and on. It goes yeah. on and on. So they reputationally need a complete overhaul. You know, we need the B-suite roles to be a destination on their own, not a stepping stone into the C-suite. We need people to be really proud of the B-suite. We need people to celebrate the B-suite as a critical state, a critical destination, you know, the place to craft your career and actually start to downplay the C-suite a little bit. It's not like that's the only destination available. We've got to cut this sense of ladder out of career thinking and we've really got to change this middle manager brand because it's truly a terrible place to be. And, and what would it take to make that more attractive beyond the reputation of being in that um, B-suite or middle management? What, what sort of changes would it take to conventional structures that you've seen to make these jobs? You, I mean, you had thousands of conversations with, with folks who are in these uh, positions. What, what are you hearing and what are you thinking that would make these jobs more um, attractive as a sort of final destination for career? Mm. The the advice that I give, so I, I work with individuals um, and teams and organizations. So I give organizations advice to, to really enhance the performance of their B-suite cohorts. And the advice that I give them is threefold. So number one is the job is not defined. It's kind of what's left over between individual contributor and C-suite. It's not being defined in its own right. So give it a defined identity, which includes things like levels of autonomy, Sign off. You know, give them some P and L, a discrete budget. Don't hold it all at the top. It's ridiculous. So you know, really rethink the definition of the role, 
the second thing is to really rethink the branding of the role. You know, we're big on branding workforce. You know, we've got culture champions and we've got awards. So we've got, you know, prizes and tenure and longevity. We don't really do anything about middle management recognition. So I think actually think a little bit more about celebrating the role, tell the stories, talk about the importance, show the value. I can't tell you how many middle managers come to me and go, I don't know what value I add. You know, if, if you don't know what value you add, that means that no one's telling you. So mm-hmm. how could you possibly perform to your full potential? You don't even know what that is. Um, and then really the third thing is to watch that workload. So again, we we do everything to trim efficiency in the workforce. You know, we remove as much admin as possible. We automate or outsource as much rubbish as we can. We do all this stuff. But what happens, you know, like scum forming on the surface of a boiling carcass, what a horrible analogy. Well, God, I wish I could reverse that. Anyway, okay. But what we do by cleaning up, you know, the, the cleaning up the workforce's work is we just surface all the junk into middle management. So their administrative burden has gone up six, you know, times six in the last 10 years. They're now mired in doing the the administrative work of managing a team. So, of course, now they're becoming seen more and more and more as not adding value strategically because 95% of their life is filling in forms and checking things off and doing the stuff that a robot could do. So we really need to have a good hard look at that because that's where the value is lost and we're paying more expensive people to do crappy admin jobs. Stupid. Very well said and very concordant with my experience and a lot of other people's experiences I've spoken to. What When you do have those 20% of B-suite leaders come to you and say, look, I really think I've got what it takes to make it to C-suite. I'm desperate to get there. Um, what do I need to work on? What are you most commonly sort of seeing uh, around capability gaps or things that these folks need to change to really put themselves in the frame for those C-suite roles? Hmm. So I think to to really, you know, if, if, that's, if that's the pathway that you want and, and you want to be absolutely clear about it, there's three things that you really have to concentrate on. The first thing you've got to concentrate on is making some room. So, you know, this thing doesn't just happen because people notice that you're good. That is such a myth. It is not hard work that will get you there. It mm. is clever work that will get you there. So you yeah. have to make room to be clever rather than busy. So controlling the pace of work is absolutely crucial. You know, you really need to be dedicated to making sure that you're carving out space in your day and not doing the busy work that made you famous in the first place, right? Um, the next thing that you need to do is completely reshape your role. So, you know, we've talked about organizations needing to do that, but in the absence of an organization doing it, you need to do it. You're not going to get noticed until you stand in a space and fill it with confidence. So that what we call kind of holding the space is really about defining that space and then holding it so people notice that you've taken a position, that you're adding value, that you are a person of, you know, of, of importance in the organization. And I use the word importance very lightly. Um, and then the third thing you need to do with the space you've got and the position you've taken is influence. Play that influence game. Get out there, make things happen by talking to people. It's really <laughs> ruthless. You've got to do it. And that might be influence your team 
to be more motivated, take more accountability, show more initiative. It might be influence your peers to be nicer collaborators, easier to get on with, more prepared to compromise. It certainly means influencing up, you know, removing roadblocks, getting mindsets right, getting agreements, bringing funding home. It could also mean influencing out in the market, you know, building your brand, watching that position, adding value to the organization's reputation. But I think without those three things, you're not going to make it. You're going to become one of those people that is simply seen as an aspirational person without a plan. Mm. And, and so, I mean, these are all fascinating things that you mentioned. I was sort of reflecting before we uh, started just about like, do a lot of these things that apply to taking the next step in leadership also make us better at life? <laughs> like if we think about, you know, how to operate well as a B-suite leader or even, you know, to try and grow into a C-suite leader, are these are these the things that are going to also make us better at handling life, often in a family unit, often with our friends, often as a member of civic society, or are they entirely different as a skill set that, that is sort of not that crossover? That's a really good spot, Mike. They are completely dual. Yeah, they are completely dual. When you when you control the pace of work, you learn to stop being busy and start being impactful. You stop sweating the small stuff. You just let the background noise disappear, right? It makes you less stressed, makes you happier, makes you focus on what you love and what really matters. Uh, when you hold that space, you you know what your value is. And to know what your value is means you know your values. So you work, you know, working in your values, which kind of just means doing things, doing the things in the way that makes you feel authentic, right? That doesn't give you that sense of, of ickiness. If you apply that to your life as well, it means you're not hanging out with people who are not a good match for your value set. It means that you're not making decisions that you feel compromise your values. You're not having that icky feeling anywhere. And that's really important because that grinds your gears and it wears you down so quickly. And then certainly when you think about influencing all the time, if, we, if we're as good at being careful of our relationships at home as we are at work, then we create better harmony. We understand how people tick. We create an environment that makes them feel happier, safer, calmer, which makes your life happier, safer, calmer. You know, they absolutely are transferable skills. So well said. Absolutely summed up perfectly there. Um, you've been called the fairy godmother of middle management. How do you feel about that? <laughs> I know. Actually, really horrible. I mean, I kind of love it, but I hate it. <laughs> I kind of love it, but I kind of hate it. I reckon fairy godmother. What, what does it even mean? Like, it's a curious like Cinderella, one. Cinderella, you know, Cinderella, ah, yeah, the magic yeah. wand and making things. But that's, that's good. You're, you're a magician of helping the beast way. Isn't that like a vaunted title? That's a nicer way of putting it. But when yeah. I think about a fairy godmother, she's like 75, quite fat, wearing a weird dress. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not there yet, man. I'm not there yet. <laughs> I think I would not go with that. I would go with like uh, having worked with you for a long time and very appreciative of the work you've done with me on my journey. Um, you know, I, I'd say that, you know, your style is somebody who gets in there, gives sharp, concise advice, um, you know, has great wisdom and maybe that's where the the fairy godmother stuff comes in but also you know the right tools um and the right things to say in the right moment to help you better navigate your work situation whether that be trying to be a better b-suite leader 
myself trying to be more effective uh, C-suite leader and how to um, manage influence, relationships, time management, and navigate a lot of the tensions that just come with a really complicated space, eh? Yeah, it is. It's really complicated. Thank you for that lovely feedback. You know, you you summed up what is what is so, so difficult for so many leaders is that they navigate all this stuff on their own. It's, mm. you know, it is complicated. It is full of friction. And, and that's the stuff that wears you down unless you can find a way to kind of step back and look at the whole picture and decide where you're going to put your energies. It can be really difficult. And a lot of us kind of have a trusted confidant at work, but of course they can only see the same forest that we see. And that becomes difficult sometimes. So it is so helpful to have a completely independent person who has never met any of the people you're talking about. Is hardly ever likely to. So it can just give you really straight shooting advice um, that you can then choose to apply or not. You know, it's ultimately up to you. And uh, I can't recommend the Bold HR program enough and the, the amount of work that you've done. Take us through a bit of the um, change in platform, uh, the whole sort of digitization and webification uh, or web 3.0 journey uh, that Bold HR has been on in recent times. <laughs> well, I'd like to I'd like to pretend it's that strategic, Mike. Um what happened? So so I um Bold HR is five years old this year. And when we first started, we didn't really know what we were going to be. Now we do. Um and over over the course of probably year three, is we really started to notice that there was a huge amount of value that was really difficult to disseminate just in individual catch-ups where we were doing a lot of coaching. I was starting to run out of spaces. You know, as, as you know, I'm almost always fully booked. So I was getting to that sort of ceiling in terms of how far the practice could go and how much value I could add and how broadly I could add value. So for us this year, we we took a, a big sort of sharp left turn and went, right, we need to find scale in this organization. We need to find a way to share the learnings at a you know an unlimited manner and still be able to add value in the one-on-one conversations that I have. So for us, setting up um building a brand new website, setting up a new community, building a learning library for all of our members to be able to go through that's been based on all of our experience models and and research. Um, Setting up assessments, so leadership assessment tools that really help you to identify where you are in your maturity versus other B-suite leaders across the world. And also, we're just about to launch um, the 360 version of that. So you're actually able to identify not just where you sit compared to others, but how others perceive you differently to yourself. So where your blind spots are as well, which is so powerful for mid-level leaders who have been doing their thing for years, potentially, without really knowing exactly where they stand. So that I'm quite excited about. Um, And then for us, it's really about continuing to be able to leverage that and and get the the knowledge out there and to help as many mid-level leaders as we can with shifting that mindset and getting through that circuit breaker stage that is so hard for leaders. Very well said, Bex. Um, how can people um, connect with you and learn more about your wonderful work at Bold HR? Oh, my wonderful work. That's so lovely. So really, really easy. Go to boldhr.com. Oh, that's easy. And if it's they want there. to chat chat to you, that's the best way to get onto you as well? They can, or they can find me really, really easily on LinkedIn. There are not very many Rebecca Hortons out there and certainly none with Bold HR on their name. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with me today. Been wonderful chatting. Um, And uh, stick around. Let's have a quick debrief. Thanks, Mike. Thanks.